Hello, and welcome to a special edition of Bridges to the Future. After another year of great conversations with fascinating people, this is the programme where I choose some of my favourite bits. It's never an easy choice, but here are my most memorable moments from Bridges 22. This is Bridges to the Future, the Big Ideas podcast, brought to you by the RSA with your host, Matthew Taylor. I'm starting in a rather bleak place. Oliver Bullo has developed a high profile as an investigator and reporter of Britain's role in the world of corruption. I interviewed Oliver about his new book, Butler to the World, How Britain Became the Servant of Tycoons, Tax Dodgers, Kleptocrats and Criminals. I asked Oliver how he became interested in corruption. His answer took us to a country much more often associated with corruption, indeed general malevolence, than our own. Well, I lived in Russia for many years. I still have a lot to do with Russia. And if you spend any time in Russia, you do end up writing about corruption. Corruption it not just whacks you in the face because you keep having bribes extorted from you by police officers, but also because it is you know, a major limit, a restricting factor on the development of the country. It stops it from developing in all sorts of directions. And so you know, living in Russia, working in Russia as a journalist, I ended up writing about corruption a lot. But it became particularly sort of vexing in a way to hear Russia being lectured about corruption from Western politicians and Western public figures, considering all of the money that got stolen, or certainly a significant proportion of it, seemed to end up in the West, and particularly in London. I would, when I was working in Moscow, I'd quite honestly be often called up by editors who would say, some guy's just bought a mansion, or some guy's just bought a football club, or whatever. Who is this guy? You know, where did his money come from? You know, somehow the money somewhere in the ether between Moscow and London would be transformed from being looted wealth into foreign direct investment and would all be just fine. So we set up these things. When I say we, it's some friends and I set up some things we called the London kleptocracy tours when we would put people in a bus, drive them around, mainly West and North London, and point out properties belonging to oligarchs in order to try and expose the extent to which London is not just a financial centre for legitimate wealth, but also a a financial centre for illegitimate wealth. And there was one particular occasion when a US academic called Andrew had asked me out for a coffee and we were talking about kleptocracy and grand corruption. And basically what he wanted was to have names of other people to talk to. And he kept asking me for the equivalent of various US institutions. You know, What's the British equivalent of the prosecutors in the Southern District in New York? Who's bringing the cases here? Or what's the British equivalent of homeland security investigations? Who's investigating, you know, immigration crimes? And eventually, you know, I became more and more depressed. And and eventually I had to say, to stop him and say, look, I'm going to have to stop you because all of these people you're asking for, they don't exist, right? We don't do any of those things here. You're America, you're the policeman to the world, right? You investigate these crimes, you prosecute these people, you try and confiscate oligarchs' money. We don't do any of that. And then I wanted an equivalent, you know, I love a snappy metaphor. I wanted an equivalent, if America is the policeman of the world, you know, what's Britain? And it's a little bit like our roles, a little bit like a conciliary in a mafia film. You know, the guy who's next to them, the godfather who, who tells him 
you know, how to run his business and so on. But obviously, that's not a British stereotype. And I wanted a British stereotype. And it suddenly came to me, well, you know, what's the British equivalent of a consigliere? It's a butler, you're impeccably dressed, you're polite, you're well managed, you've got the right accent, you can quote classical literature, but essentially, you're amoral and just will do whatever you like for a fee. I was called in a book review recently, it was called the dark Jeeves concept. But actually, Jeeves is pretty dark. Listening to Oliver, it's difficult to feel anything but shame at our country's record. But, I asked him, is there any hope that things might change? I'm going to dodge that question a bit because I worry that if we find ourselves hoping that Britain is going to stop being a butler, we'll just end up disappointed. And, you know, like some of those people who I mentioned who work for the National Crime Agency, then after six years, they'll just give up and go and work for HSBC. My philosophy in this derives from my friend Daria Kalinyuk, who's one of the bravest people I know and who is an anti-corruption activist in Ukraine, though she's currently in Warsaw, uh, is running the office of the Anti-Corruption Action Centre there. And I once asked her how she doesn't get demoralised, you know, up against oligarchs all the time and, and, you know, seeing endless reverses and difficulties in in the work she does. She's achieved an incredible amount, but still, I mean, she's up against it every single day. And she said that she doesn't think about the situation like that at all. She doesn't think about defeating corruption 100%. She just thinks, well, currently we're at 4%. And my job is to get to five. And if we get to five, I'll look around and decide if I want to keep going. But if I decide we do, then my next job will be to get to six. So, you know, I don't think that it helps to look at sort of a, you know, a, a broad sunlit upland and think that's where we need to be because, you know, the, the, the way there will be so tiring that we'll get demoralised and give up. Instead, we just need to take the wins when they come and keep, you know, strategizing about how we can make sure we get a few more of them. And, you know, if there is a, a positive side to the horror in Ukraine at the moment, and, and you know, it, it feels awful saying that, it is that at least we are now realising more clearly the role that our country has played in enabling the crimes of Putin's cronies. And if we can get out of that business of enabling their crimes, it'll be easier to get out of the business of enabling all financial crimes. You know, it's going to take a a lot of effort. There's going to be a lot of people who aren't going to want this to happen because it's very profitable for them. But, you know, we just need to take this one percentage point at a time. If Oliver's book cast an unflattering light on today's Britain, another book, One of the best books on politics I've ever read provided some fascinating insights into our history. Phil Tinline's Death of Consensus explored the role of collective nightmares in shaping the political horizons of the politicians of the 30s, the 70s and the present day. We tend to think proudly of our democratic traditions, but Phil's inspiration for the book was a period of our history when a coup seemed like a genuine possibility. I spent a lot of time thinking about 1974 and why it is that British politics got itself into this extraordinary position where, you know, people, serious people were talking about how we might have to have some sort of authoritarian interlude that, you know, we might even see intervention by the army or private armies. Why would we get to that point? And I eventually realised that the unthinkability of unemployment in 1972 put such a hard limit on what people were able to do that they actually began to think about suspending democracy, about using force to break picket lines, because that seemed less unthinkable than allowing unemployment to climb, which of course, as we eventually saw, was a much more effective 
and democratic way of, for good or ill, weakening the power of the trade union. So it was really there. And then I started to sort of think about that paradigm, you know, in the 1930s, and it works in a different way. I'm in no way saying, obviously, that history works in a neat little loop. But you can see similar sort of patterns around 1931 and through to 1940. And also, of course, trying to make sense of of what was going on in British politics over the last decade, and particularly after the Brexit vote, but watching the sort of stasis that broke out in Parliament after Theresa May lost her majority, that that really started to kind of suggest to me that there was a sort of set of patterns, which did again have an echo of the 70s, and that what you were seeing was, just as in the 70s, a series of failed attempts to try to change how things were working through, you know, in place of strife, then Heath's efforts with an industrial relations court, and then a sort of step backwards to the sort of social contract. And finally, after the, only after the winter of discontent, you get to Thatcher. I started to see around about 2017 that you could see a similar pattern happening after the financial crash, that you could see, you know, Philip Blonde and Morris Glassman and all these people trying to persuade political leaders to to break with old nightmares of on which the sort of the, the power of finance crudely had been based for a long time. And that that is petered out, people were too wary of it. But that then after Brexit, you suddenly had this moment with Nick Timothy and Theresa May, where it looked like it might Breakthrough, and and I I've started working on that at that point, and then they lost the election while I was first looking at it. So again, it seemed that there was a, a very strong resistance, which seemed not just to be a sort of mathematical calculation of what was best, but a visceral sense that we cannot allow certain things to happen. We cannot allow you know a, a return of a strong state. We cannot allow any risk of inflation. We must get the deficit down. That those things had a sort of a similar quality to the visceral fear of unemployment in the nineteen. 19- 70s. And then thinking, of course, about what happened to that fear and its supersession by the fear of inflation and a fear of mass picketing, eventually, as I say, by the winter of discontent, that you could start to see the possibility of that happening here. Reading Phil's analysis of paradigm shifts in our political imagination, the question I was left with was why, given the global financial crisis, COVID, Brexit, looming climate catastrophe, so much of the establishment still seem to be clinging on to the same ideas with which we entered the 21st century. Firstly, these things work in a really messy way, because what we're talking about is a democracy changing its mind. Millions and millions of people had to change their minds about you know, the acceptability of mass unemployment, the, the viability of a free market in a complex interconnected economy between, let's say, 1968 and 1980. So what I would say is that the crises we've seen have not finally ended, quote unquote, neoliberalism. But I think major shifts have happened. So that's the first thing. If you look at, you know, the economics profession, there's been a sea change in in what is seen as being viable and what is seen as being, you know, now rather questionable, a shift away basically from a sort of Hayekian model among particularly younger economists, which will start to work its way through. You can see this in the rhetoric of the, you know, the head of the CBI castigating the legacy of Thatcherism in the North of England, or, you know, the editor of The Economist, I think, describing herself as a, a Keynesian, the IMF calling for greater attention to inequality. And if you look at the response that the government has made to those three big crises, you know, in the financial crisis, there is a massive injection of government money, but it primarily is there to rescue the banks. It's not going into, you know, individual people's pockets. People absorb the shock through taking pay cuts or moving to more precarious, but worse paid jobs. When COVID hits, you get something 
more radical. And I think it's no accident that that happens after Brexit and this great expression of partly economic discontent four years earlier. And so you have the furlough scheme, you know, devised by a basically Thatcherite chancellor with the TUC. You know, that's very hard to see happening in 2008. And then you look at the speed with which our new prime minister has gone from saying that, you know, helping people with their bills would be a handout to, you know, a huge amount of money being spent. So I think you can see a shift happening, but we shall see what happens. Phil Tinline's book is in large part about yesterday's events and how they take a grip on today's ambitions. The broader role of nostalgia was the subject of a wide-ranging conversation I enjoyed with historian Hannah Rose Woods, author of Rule Nostalgia, A Backward History of Britain. It turns out that nostalgia is a very political phenomenon. There is a dark side to these nostalgias. You know, they're often mobilised to stand in the way of social progress and to say, well, if wealth doesn't make us happy anyway, you know, why would we put our efforts into, you know, redistributing income and pursuing social equality? Which, you know, the fact that we've been having these debates since the 16th century is quite tragic. But, I mean, I hope that there is a more optimistic picture to be pulled out of those nostalgias that actually people articulate what's important to them when they're mourning what they feel they've lost. And what people are longing for is social connection. You know, that this idea that, you know, people were, were closer knit, they had their emotional needs met by their communities more in the past. And, you know, that might not give us an accurate perspective on what life was actually like in the past. But you know, it does tell us what people think is important in the societies in which they live. Yeah, and there's something here, Anna, about a particular point of the book where, although we're talking about these kind of different perspectives as being eternal and almost irresolvable, they'll always, always be there. There are also moments in the book when there is a kind of settled view, and often you question that view. And one example of this is, is this kind of settled view that the demolition of old working class neighbourhoods in favour of high rise flats and people moving out to those kind of council estates on the suburbs. Now, we all know that lots of that went wrong, but there's a kind of settled view that it was a complete disaster now. And as your book reminds us actually at the time the vast majority of people living in kind of back-to-back terraced houses in the east end or in glasgow were delighted by the fact that they had central heating and bathrooms and and stuff like that and that helps us to have a more balanced view of that time yeah i mean i think it's interesting because um often a lot of the social studies that we as historians have to go on about how people felt about their new dwellings, whether that was in you know high-rise flats or in new towns, often those social researchers themselves had these you know very preconceived ideas about working-class communities that we might you know call traditional, in inverted commas. You know they were kind of u- often university-educated social researchers, often on the political left, and you know they had these very romantic images of you know working-class solidarity, mutual help. All of which, you know, to an extent did exist, but they, you know, were kind of quite blind to the downsides of people living at such close quarters in, in slums and tenement communities. And actually, when they when they interviewed people, 
you know, they found them, you know, explaining that it was very difficult to live life at, at such close quarters. But I think also, you know, we have this idea that community declined over the second half of the 20th century. And often we're not quite clear what we mean by community. Because if you grow up at very close quarters with people, you don't always have a choice about whether you socialise with them or, you know, how much your business becomes everyone else's business. But actually, you know, often people choosing to move to new areas enabled more voluntary forms of community. You know, for instance, we actually see much more, you know, towards the 1970s and 1980s and onwards that people invite other people home more, people socialise in their homes, you know, when they have nice spaces where they can entertain they're able to socialise with people, you know, in a, in a wider network and people that they've, they share interests with and have chosen, you know, to form a community with. So nostalgia, it appears, is in a constant process of revisionism and counter-revisionism. One example I found particularly surprising was the way the idea of Merry England got separated from its original and rather seditious associations of the pre-Reformation. I mean, I think it's a fantastic example of how our memories of history, you know, our memories of the past that are grounded in reality, slowly over time kind of transpose into nostalgia for a rose-tinted fantasy version of those memories. So yeah, as you say, you know, in the in the immediate aftermath of the Reformation, you know, people could invoke the, the merry world or, you know, the merry England of the past in a way that could could get the speaker arrested. It was, you know, seen as a kind of seditious movement that was, you know, explicitly kind of anti-monarchy, you know, a revolutionary sentiment. But then, the, you know, the, the more time went on, the more Merry England came to refer less to like an actual reality that had existed or might have existed before the Reformation. And more of a kind of like an ahistorical, cosy time of yore. You know, the kind of, I think we still have this idea of the medieval period today is a kind of unchanging time of yore, you know, Robin Hood and his merry men, outlaws in the forest, hearty peasants, you know, drinking ale, you know, a kind of time of plenty. Shakespeare's As You Like It, I think, kind of is rooted in that same fantasy. So, yeah, I mean, it is it is inherently less seditious to, to yearn for a time that never really existed. And then, it, you know, it is easier for, for, in turn, you know, those in charge to promise that fantasy as a kind of populist crowd pleaser. So, you know, by the time we get to the restoration of the monarchy with Charles II at the end of the 17th century, you know, he's like explicitly styling himself as, as the merry monarch who's going to restore, you know, this vanished time of like saints days and May games and communal festivities. But really, people are no longer yearning for that. The past as it actually existed, you know, they're perfectly comfortable with their self-image as English Protestants who can kind of harmlessly appropriate the traditions of the Catholic past. One interview in particular this year got me thinking about my own past, my own assumptions. Christine Ember's book, Rethinking Sex, explores how masculine attitudes to sex have shaped women's expectations. But she's also concerned about the ways in which we commodify relationships. A friend of mine described this book as being ostensibly about sex, but also in some ways being a critique of how we understand the concepts of contracts, of, of freedom, of living as liberal autonomous individuals in in a marketplace and 
sex is a locus of that and exemplifies so many of the trends in our society that I do wonder about. There is a section in the book, a chapter, in fact, where I talk about dating gaps and how they have helped to train us in a sort of lived understanding of ourselves and other people as commodities in the marketplace. You know, you have apps like Tinder or Bumble that are set up to look like a deck of cards and you're swiping through different people, you're swiping through faces. This does lead people to view others as in some ways disposable, as rankable. And I think that this commoditization and this transactionalism, this viewing other people as objects in a certain way, has really influenced a lot of our sexual culture. And again, thinking of consent as an agreement between two parties where you sort of contract to allow a sexual act to take place that you can get something from someone else, basically, feeds into that. But yet there are other areas, Christine, aren't there, that are areas of intimacy, emotion, vulnerability, you know, whether it's funeral directors or oncologists, if you're paying for medicine or psychotherapists or masseurs, and we pay for their services. So what's wrong with the notion of us buying sex like any other commodity? So I think you have to and I think what I try to do is ask people what they wanted from their sexual encounters and what they believe sex to be to ferret out why this understanding might be misplaced, at least in this case. And you know, when I talk to people about what they're looking for in sex, in sexual encounters, in relationships, they don't say that they're looking for a service. People say that they want relationships of care. They want empathy and listening. They they want someone who is responsible for them and who they can be responsible to. They want to be in relationship. You know, they're not looking for a one-time experience that they can buy. They could get that somewhere else. And so if you want a relationship that's not contractual, I think most people, when they think of, oh, I, I've met this person, I, I want to have sex with them, I want to be in a relationship with them, they're not thinking, oh, I want to be in a market-based relationship with this person where we each contract for each other's services. They want something deeper and more intimate and more meaningful that transcends sort of the economics of the marketplace. But if you treat sex as, you know, this marketplace activity, you're actively choosing against the sort of relationship that many people say they, they really want. And that mismatch has a whole host of problems. Christine's book is Brave. She's open about her own religious past and how it shaped her perspective. She argues that many of us, including women, are deluding ourselves about the role of sex in our lives. I asked Christine whether she had doubted whether the book was a good idea for her to write at all. <laughs> That's a great question, and you're completely right. I, I think that I had that experience at, at almost every moment. Almost every chapter title, in fact, is one where I, you know, I started writing the chapter and was thinking, oh, oh no, <laughs> I guess we have to do this. <laughs> but, you know, the point of this book, Rethinking Sex's title is subtitled A Provocation for that reason. I think that so many young men and women especially, but really people of all ages, are experiencing a sexual culture that feels painful, that is not helping them, you know, reach the goals that they want. And they want to move forward. We want a way to fix this. And the only way to sort of move forward from saying, oh, this is 
this is bad. We agree that this is bad too. Okay, what do we do next? Is by having an honest conversation. And so in this book, you know, I'm I'm trying to set the table for that honest conversation about where the sexual revolution and feminist movement hope to take us and where we've ended up, about whether we're over-relying on consent as a rubric for understanding what good sex looks like. And yes, some of the questions I'm raising in the book inevitably raise hackles and make me nervous bringing them up because so many of these topics feel a little bit taboo right now. And because they explicitly challenge some understandings that we have assumed are settled or because they will push readers, including myself as I was writing it, frankly, to reconsider their own actions under a new and perhaps harsher light sometimes. But this is what we need to move forward. So someone has to do it. I admire writers who capture that sense of personal urgency in their work. It was a quality that flowed through one of my favourite books and certainly my standout interview of the year. When I first picked up Haggitude by writer and therapist Sharon Blackie, I wondered how much I would get out of a book written in praise of postmenopausal women. The answer was more, much more than I thought. I asked Sharon whether my increasing sense that older women can be amongst the most powerful drivers of change in the world was one she shared. Well, I do recognise it, actually, yes. And it is very interesting to me that one of the kind of mythic archetypes that I talk about in the book are all of these wonderful old women of old European mythology, you know, the fates in Greece, for example, the Norns in Scandinavia, who are creatively, constantly weaving, creating the world into being, but but with a constant sense of it changing it. You know, they don't just weave a tapestry and then it's ended. They're constantly weaving and reweaving and interweaving. And I think that there is a sense when we look at these traces of our oldest mythology, they do reflect a reality. So yes, I would say absolutely women, probably. Perhaps it's because of the great physical transformations that we undergo as well as psychological transformations, you know, with the onset of menstruation, with pregnancy for those who who do that. And then with menopause, transformation is part of life. And so I think women perhaps embrace it a little bit more easily because we can't avoid it. We're shape-shifting all of the time, all of the way up to the very end. A couple more things about the book. Although you cite admirable older women, you know, from Mary Wesley to Jermaine Greer, your focus, as you've said, is much more on the old women of folktale and myth. And it's, it's as if you're searching for the essence of what older women have stood for and could stand for. Yes, because I think that's what these old stories do for us. You know, if you look at folk tales, for example, myths can be a bit more complex, but if you look at folk and fairy tales, they're very simple stories in a way. And you wonder why they have such power. But the reason why they have such power is that they carry with them these characters that we all recognize, that we can all see, you know, characters who may wear different clothes from culture to culture, but who we all know. We all know who the hero is. We all know, you know, who the wise old woman in the woods is or the princess. We understand these archetypes. And so it seems to me that stories really do illuminate for us possibilities by their very simplicity. And all of the best folk tales and fairy tales tell us how to get out of or overcome or transform situations that on the surface look absolutely impossible. And so I think stories really do help us reimagine ourselves. And, and I have worked with them in many, many different 
capacities. And when I was practicing as a psychologist, it was very clear to me that many psychological techniques do not work simply because people find them boring. Whereas if you can embroil somebody in a story, capture their imagination, and help them to reimagine the situation that they find themselves in, all kinds of things can change. So that's really why I was focusing particularly on those stories. As I said, Sharon is a therapist. Indeed, I was so impressed by her own journey outlined in her book that I asked her for some advice. How would she overcome her own fears? And how might I overcome mine? For me, it was understanding the root of that fear you know, which was quite a long process. So I can't, the short answer is I can't give you a short answer, but it's understanding where that comes from, what, what aspects of your life lead to that fear. And for me, as I said, you know, it was understanding that all of the things that I had gone through as a child and a teenager made me clutch desperately to, to safety and security and anything that might undermine that I found very frightening. So then I had to kind of like look and say, okay, you know, what am I going to do about that? And I had a fairly radical solution, but it worked for me. So I think for anyone in that situation, it's understanding the source of your fear. What do you think is going to happen? But most of all, I think it's an orientation to seeing life as a constant set of transformations without which you're dead. If you don't grow, you're dead already. You know, you're static. Nothing is nothing is real and alive in there. And so I really did see it you know, not as something I would have chosen, but as another possibility for transformation that would help me break out of some patterns that I really needed to break out of. So that's why I call it a gift. It's just, it was the perfect excuse for just stopping. So I, I all I can say is, you know, find your own equivalent. It's questioning, interrogating what is the source of that fear or what you call cowardice. What do you fear is going to happen? How can you shift that story so that instead of fearing something is going to happen, you can look at what might happen as what my Californian friends call another bleep opportunity for growth? Well, then let's go to the third element of this, which may uncover slightly more, which is control. So getting older for me has simply meant that I've kind of doubled down on my control freakery. I I joylessly exercise ever harder to try to stay younger. I, I work even more intensely to prove I'm important or probably more vitally to make sure that I continue to be seen as being important. And as I become more and more tired with this kind of futile exercise of control, I think one day about stopping. But, but you know what, Sharon, I have simply no idea what I would do without my ambition and my status. Yeah, and that is fascinating. And I think, again, it, it comes down to these cultural narratives who tell us that that is what we must be, that we must strive always to be more. It's a combination of the myth of more and the, the myth of the heroic that I was talking about. And part of the challenge for most people in that, I would say, is to step back from the narrative. It's kind of difficult to do, but to step back from the narrative, look at all of the ways in which it is not healthy, and then try to imagine what a better narrative would be. You know, I call it the post-heroic. The heroic has killed us. You know, it's got us into the mess, every aspect of the mess we're in now. What does it mean to be post-heroic, to kind of shrug off that heroic way of looking at the world that says it's all about you and it's all about your ambition and it's all about status or whatever it may be for individuals? And just look and say, okay, you know, what is the nature of my gift? And, and so to look at it more 
or as much as service rather than serving oneself? What am I, you know, what am I giving to the world? What am I putting out there in the world that matters? It's a really complicated question that you're asking that doesn't have a simple answer. But all of the answers, it seems to me, begin with this really strong questioning of the cultural narrative and how you fit into it. Because our personal stories are told and who we think we are and who we think we should be are always happening in the context of the cultural story that tells us who we must be. Really, it's so much time, both for men and women, to shake that up. I, I don't know very many men who are happy because of you know this heroic label that the culture has kind of placed on them. So that's it. I could have chosen extracts from any of the other episodes. And please do check out our back catalogue, ranging from gamification and nuclear accidents to happiness and the history of the workout. And if you want a New Year's resolution, how about promising yourself that you'll put a comment about Bridges, hopefully positive, in your podcast app? Thanks for listening. And I look forward to sharing more of my conversations with you in 2023. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit thersa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.